Hello. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you tonight. Thank you for coming out to this Men's Retreat 2024. It's delightful to be here uh, with you tonight. Thank you for giving me the honor of allowing me to uh, open the Word of God for you. Uh, I didn't realize that we were going to be tested on our memory of certain songs. Uh, and uh, I did remember the, the second part of that second stanza, but the last one I, I had forgotten. So, so I guess I'll, we'll have to uh, redo that one again until we get it right. That was supposed to be funny. All right. So that's what kind of crowd I'm dealing with tonight. All right. Well, as I said, it's a delight to be here with you, and thank you for coming out to this gathering of Christian saints, brothers, and sisters in the Lord. And uh, something that should become obvious, or I should not become, is obvious to us, is that uh, human beings are by nature relational beings, aren't we? We, we desire to have relationship with one another. We are, we are made in the image of God who is himself in perfect relationship, a personal God in perfect relationship, perfect, harmonious, infinite love relationship one with another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created by a God who is himself a God of relationship. And so the communicable attribute of relationship God placed into us when the Son of God, and I'm convinced it was the Son who came and took dust from the ground, formed it in the shape of man, breathed into it, and made that thing a living being, put into that creature this desire, this need, this idea of relationship, having relationship with somebody else, most specifically putting Adam at that moment into a right vertical relationship with God himself. They had a relationship. I mean, at the beginning of Genesis 3, we learn that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Why is he there? He's there to meet with his creation. And even though Adam had relation with God in the sense of a relationship with him, he undoubtedly had relationships as you would with animals and potentially even with creatures in the spirit realm, for all we know. God said, yet it is not good for this man to be alone. There's something missing in him. Because the man also yearned within himself for a horizontal relationship to someone of his own kind, if you will. Another human being, someone made like him. And so God formed from the man, in other words, from the image of the man, formed from him another human from whom would flow a personal relationship horizontally, which would produce marriage and children and family and the whole of civilization would be built on this relationship. We are relational creatures, and God created us from his own nature as relational creatures. But, of course, when sin came into the world, it corrupted this aspect of the Imago Dei in us, as all others were perverted by our sin. And so the relationship with God was banished, even as God was cast from the garden, banished from it. And corruptions of every kind then came into his relationship with others. Not only was his relationship with the living God destroyed, but his relationships on the horizontal level were all corrupted as well. And so into the world came all kinds of perversions of relationship, like adultery and polygamy and homosexuality and on and on. All perverted by sin. Perverted the original intention of God making us creatures of relationship. But the good news from that, of course, is that it was God's intention, God's purpose to redeem all such corruptions through the work of Christ. That Christ would come to reconcile men back to a harmonious relationship with their creator and to restore the fallen nature of relationships between men. The Son of God the one who had formed the one in the garden, 
came into the world as a man. He entered into this creation as one of us in Adam's flesh, without his sin, of course, but in his flesh, to relate to his own. He came to relate to them on their level, to our level, God coming to us to restore what had been broken and to do it through obedience to God. And I would suggest not just to redeem us back to Adam's pre-fall state, not just to sort of restore things to what they were, but rather through the work that he did to glorify all things such that they are infinitely better than the original. Christ's glorified body coming out of the tomb was infinitely greater than Adam's was in the garden beforehand. And so when the Son of God set out to reconcile relationships both vertically and horizontally, he didn't come just to, you know, sort of restore it back to what it was. He came to glorify it. He came to make it much better, infinitely better than what was there originally. Thus is the intention of our God through Christ to glorify human relationship as lost in the fall, to establish a greater relationship between men and God on the one hand and men and men on the other. He came, Christ came to to do and to restore, to glorify to a much greater place what God had originally intended for us. The idea of relationship that we have as human beings being built as relational creatures in redemption is more than just fixing something. It's making it infinitely better. So I put this assertion before you tonight. And here's my assertion. My assertion is that the church, the gathering of the saints, is a means by which redeemed humans, that is the elect in Christ, do, in fact, draw near to God. It is a means through which we draw near to God. The church is... And I'll be bold enough to say the organism by which Christ draws his own near to God. The organism to do that. Not as an institution of religion. Certainly we will practice certain aspects of the Christian faith within the church. We'll talk about those in a minute but as a living organism through which we relate personally to God in an infinitely greater way even than Adam did in the garden. The church, as a family of sons and daughters who come together before their heavenly father to worship him, to honor him in a relationship far greater than even Adam had walking with God in the garden. That's kind of a radical assertion, isn't it? That the church isn't just some sort of gathering place. It is an assertion that it is a family made up of the sons and daughters of the living God who have been drawn together by the Spirit into an organism of relationship far greater than what Adam had with God to begin with. So I put this thesis before you. Based on that assertion, I put this thesis before you. The godly man loves the gathering of the church. The godly man loves the gathering of his church because it is a means by which he draws near to God as a part of the glorified family of his heavenly father. He gathers with the body because he loves to draw near to his heavenly father alongside his brothers in Christ. His primordial desire for relationship to his creator, 
is satisfied in the company of the glorified family that Christ is drawn together in the presence of God. He desires that desire that's placed in that. I call it a primordial desire, that sense built deep into his soul of wanting a relationship with his creator that comes from God himself, is satisfied in the company of the elect. In a far greater relationship there than even could be seen in Adam before the fall. Now that's quite a thesis, isn't it? That's quite an assertion, isn't it? Hmm. Think I can prove it? Well, let's give it a try, shall we? I have a biblical reason for this, and it comes out of a very well-known passage of Scripture in this regard. It's found, of course, in Hebrews chapter 10, and that verse that we are going to look at specifically is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, a verse you're quite familiar with. I'll quote it to you from the King James Version. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Okay? You often hear this used in, in, as, as a part of this discussion. This word assembling is the word episynagoge. Sound familiar? It literally means to synagogue, to assemble, to gather, a meeting of some sort, or assembling together. Do not forsake the gathering together of yourself, the synagoguing of yourself together. Now, as I said, this is one of those verses that's very familiar because it's used mostly by people to say, well, you see, you ought to go to church. Okay, that's what its purpose is. We use it this way. We use it as a cludge, or a club, I should say, to a cudgel, a club, to say, okay, you should go to church because the Bible says don't forsake assembling together one with another. Okay, I grant that that's true from the verse, but the context of the verse strongly suggests a far greater reality around the idea of gathering. Verse 25 cannot be taken out of its context. It has to be seen in what the writer says around it. And so we're going to look at that. Now, let me set the context for you before we read the verses. In Hebrews chapters 1 through 9 and the first 18 verses of chapter 10, all of 1, 1 through 10, 18, is a massive set of what we in theological circles call indicatives. Truth statements. It's a whole section of truth statements. Fundamentally, you have nine and a half chapters that the writer does an exhaustive examination of the supremacy of Christ Jesus over the entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now remember, this is written, as the book says, to a Hebrew audience. It's written to people who are very familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, probably many of them still participating in it. So this writer is writing this massive tome on the supremacy of Christ Jesus. And as you go through those nine and a half chapters, the writer asserts many things. He asserts, for example, that Jesus is the supreme high priest, far greater than any of the high priests that ever existed in the Levitical system who mediates a much better covenant by offering a perfect sacrifice in a divine temple, producing a permanent redemption and a complete reconciliation under an everlasting intercession and mediation for a perfected people for all time. A perfect high priest, a perfect covenant, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect temple, a perfect, perfect redemption, a perfect reconciliation, a perfect intercession and mediation, a perfected people, and for all time. In other words, the writer says, Christ is superior to anything related to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is asserting to his audience that faith 
In Christ, faith in Jesus is far superior to the Old Testament sacrificial systems with its man-made buildings, its blemished offerings, its limited and sinful and dying priests, and its unfinished atonements having to be done over and over and over and over again, never being finished, never being completed, and never providing any sort of assurance that you actually were atoned for. You hope it was true. So nine and a half chapters, the writer is making it clear that Jesus is the supreme high priest. But in 1019, there's a change. In the 1019, at 1019, the book changes from the indicatives to the imperatives. He goes from the truth statements to here's what you must do because of what you just learned. Because Jesus is the supreme high priest, here's what you are to do. Notice the very first word of verse 19. Therefore, here's what you're to do. Therefore, the therefore is as a result of the above, here's what we are to do. Moving from the foundational truths that the writer put forth to the commands, dare I say responses, that he expects ought to come as a result of believing these truths. Now, in the simplest sense, in this case, the writer is about to give us a contrast. You could argue it's been going on all the way through the book up to this point. A contrast. A contrast of confidence. A confidence, or lack thereof, in the Old Testament sacrificial system versus a confidence in the finished work of Christ. Very simply, the writer puts it this way in Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now notice that. In the middle of the indicatives, buried in the middle of the indicatives, is a hint as to where he's eventually going to go. He says, listen, all of this about Christ, what's it about? It's about us drawing near, that we may receive mercy, that we may receive grace to help in time of need. In other words, you Hebrews, as you're listening to me, instead of drawing away from Christ to the self-confidence in the sacrificial system, how about if we do something else with a new and continuing confidence in Christ? What if we do something else? What if our confidence is not in what was, but what if our confidence is in something else? So then in these verses, then the writer goes where he's going to go. Now, 19 to 21 is a recap, a summary of the truths above to get to the command of verse 22. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, okay, let's stop there. See what he did in three verses there? He summarizes in a sense, he recaps what he has been saying all the way through. Okay, since we have a supreme high priest, and because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we actually have the confidence to go into the holy places. We have the confidence to actually go where you couldn't go before, which is into the very presence of God himself, the holy places. You couldn't go there by the blood of Jesus. And you could go through the curtain, which, as you know, separated the holy of holies from the most holy place, right? So you would, you would could go... You, the high priest could go in there, but none of us could go in there. None of the Hebrews could go in there. But we can. We can go through the curtain by his flesh, which Christ opened up for us through his flesh by breaking down that separation from God. And in verse 21, and because we now have a great priest, because we now have a permanent mediator between us and God, because we now have one who will continually mediate our reconciliation, therefore, okay, so the three verses are because we have confidence to go through the curtain 
by the one who is our permanent mediator, here's what we're to do. So verse 22 becomes the great imperative of this book. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. This word draw near, big old Greek word about this long, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, means to approach or visit to come near, but can also mean to assent to or consent to something. But in this context, it seems to be the idea of actually going somewhere, to approach or visit something. Now, the question you should ask when you look at the verse is, well, to what? Draw near to what? Because it doesn't say, does it? It just says, let us draw near. There's no object behind the verb. It just says to draw near. Now, the answer here, I believe, is that the writer is implying the possibility of more than one thing to consider here. He leaves it open for reason. Now, obviously, obviously, the implication of let us draw near is let us draw near to God, right? Because you go back to the previous three verses, you see that. Let's go into the holy places, through the curtain, into the house of God. Okay, so it's, it seems like the draw near is obviously let's go into the very presence of God himself. You see it? Into the holy places. So the implication of the context of this let us draw near seems to be let's draw near to the presence of God. Let's draw near to his holy habitation. Let's draw near to where God is. Agreed. But let me suggest that there may be a broader analysis of what it is the writer is leaving open based on all of what he has spoken of in the previous nine and a half chapters. He may be implying our need to draw near to a plethora of things representative of an intimate fellowship with God. Things now possible in Christ that would have never even been thinkable amongst the Hebrews. He leaves it open not just to the idea of the presence of God, but to a far greater set of realities. Sure, it's to the presence of God, absolutely. But the writer may also be thinking, as you see in verse 23, to a true assurance of faith. As he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He may be saying, not only do we draw near to God in a, in a, a geographical sense, but to a true assurance of what it means to actually know God by faith. And then verse 24 and also drawing near to a productive and useful life of faith. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. That flows out of this reality. And then even in verse 25, to the encouragement of true Christian fellowship. So it's, it's more than just let's go see where God lives. It's let's go and enjoy all that God has purposed for us to have as those redeemed in Christ. In other words, a relationship with God infinitely greater than what even Adam had prior to the fall. A more complete relationship with God that Adam himself did not even have. In other words, to draw near in this verse to me is the complete concept of coming into the presence of God with all of the attendant assurances purchased for us in Christ. Even if the Hebrew could have gone behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, would he have had confidence to stand there? No. He would have been terrified of being in that place for no one could go behind the curtain. But we can. There's a very different reality to us going into the presence of God than even Adam himself had. In other words, not only has the supreme high priest offered a perfect sacrifice 
in a perfect temple, etc. But he has also made a perfect way for us to enter in with him. To enter into the divine temple itself. To go into the very holy of holies. To present ourselves before a holy God and to know him. I.e. as in having a relationship with him. Far too much of the evangelical world, I think, speaks about having a relationship with God in what I would consider very pedantic terms. Yes, I have a relationship with Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Well, he's my buddy. You know, if I ever need help, I can... Excuse me, Jesus, could I borrow you for a minute? That's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The writer of Hebrews is talking about a relationship with God that is so infinitely greater because of what Christ has done, that it comes with attendant assurances that, frankly, are beyond our imagination. It's like I said earlier, for the Hebrews, things under which in their covenant would have been unthinkable, not even on the radar. The idea of actually having a full-orbed assurance of walking into the presence of a holy God as a sinner and being welcomed as a son of God would not have even crossed their minds. And yet, Christ has made that precisely what we have in him. He has made a perfect way for us to know God. So therefore, the God, for the godly man, the assembling of verse 25 is far, far more than just going to church. The assembling that he's talking about in verse 24 isn't just about going to church. Sure, it includes that, but that's probably the most trivial aspect of what it means. It is about, it is a part, I mean, of what it means to draw near to God. It is an element of what Christ has purchased for the godly man as the supreme high priest. It's an imperative in real life to come into the presence of God alongside others who have also been invited by Christ behind the curtain. We've been invited individually and corporately, together, behind the curtain. The godly man knows that the assembly is far more than just a religious activity. He recognizes it as a central aspect of drawing near to God, a privilege purchased for him by his supreme high priest. He knows that it's more than just some religious activity. It's more than that. It's far greater than that. It's not about checking off some box on a Sunday morning to make sure, okay, I've done that. No. It's about the supreme high priest having accomplished something so great that we can't wait to participate in it. Now, let's talk about the godly man's love of this gathering then. What is the value of this gathering for the godly man? What is the value of this gathering? Not neglecting to meet together as the habits of some, but encouraging one another. What does that mean? Now, certainly, certainly, there's no doubt from the rest of Scripture that we can, dis- we can discover that the value of meeting together, gathering together, as we're speaking of here, is for, of course, true worship. Fundamentally. All coming into the presence of God is going to wind up in worship, isn't it? By definition. To come into the very presence of God is to fall down before him and to worship him. In fact, in verse 23, it says that we are to hold fast the confession. 
The importance of worship, therefore, is to hold fast this confession. So what we are doing when we gather together isn't just clicking off some religious activity. We are coming together to hold that confession. It is a way of us standing before others and saying, I believe that Jesus is my supreme high priest. And I have followed him into the presence of the Father by faith in what he accomplished on my behalf. That's what I believe. So when we hold fast the confession, we do it in a lot of different ways. We, we sing. We make testimony, right? We sing hymns like the one we just sang. That was a testimony. As you were seeing that, did you believe it was true? Did you believe the words that were contained on the screen as you sang them? Assuming that you could remember them. Of course, it's a testimony. We sing this confession. We're holding it fast. We are standing in the very presence of God and in the presence of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're saying, I believe that to be true. We do it through prayer, of course. We speak to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit through our words. It's part of relationship, isn't it? You have a relationship with your wife because you speak to your wife. And she speaks to you. Right? Did you, ever, did you develop your relationship with your wife other than speaking to her? Because if you did, I'd really like to figure out how you did it. Because you were a magician. Because as human beings, relationship is built on language, isn't it? All relationship is built on language. We read scripture together. Okay, so prayer is for us to speak to God. Scripture reading is for us him to speak to us from his word. He reveals himself to us through our giving. We do so as well. And then, of course, centrally through the preaching of the word. We preach the word and God comes through the preacher and speaks to us. He speaks to our hearts and to our minds. And it is the central activity of worship, all for the purpose of honoring our father. So the first value that we see in worship is, I'm sorry, in the gathering is true worship. We see the need to worship. But there's more to it than that. See, that's where the, the pedantic use of verse 25 stops, right? You, you should not, you should be gathering. What does that mean? Well, you know, go to church, sing and pray and listen to the scriptures and try not to fall asleep when the preacher's preaching. But there's more to it than that, clearly more to that. The godly man recognizes, wait, there's value far beyond that even because it's meeting together even for Christian community. Again, I am convinced from my reading of the epistles of Paul that the Christian faith has a strong communal nature. You simply cannot avoid it. The Christian faith has a strong communal nature. Now, I'm not, I'm not ignoring the fact that God saves individuals. He comes to individuals and brings by his spirit them to Christ, no doubt. But what happens automatically? They are joined together in groups. They become communities of believers that are gathered together. Paul wrote to churches. Every one of his letters was written in one way or another to a church. Even when he wrote to Timothy, he's really writing to the church of Timothy. He expected the letter to be read by the church, didn't he? So we're not ignoring the individual response of faith and following of Christ. But unfortunately for many so-called Christians in our day, it seems as though the value of Christianity stops when you get to the point of the individual response. Okay, I've made my commitment to Christ. I've prayed the prayer, right? Okay, I'm, I'm good now and I'll go to heaven when I die. But the church is really sort of, well, you know, if I can find a good one that looks just like I want it to, and the preacher doesn't preach too long. And, you know, they do the, th the things the way I want to, you know, like the worship and so forth. Then I'll go. Otherwise, no. But it's missing the point, isn't it? It's not about all of those things. It's about something greater than that. Which is why I think you see this diminishing value of preaching in the church. Which has led to this, well dare I say it, doctrinal illiteracy amongst so many who call themselves Christians. I was asked by a man of a different denomination just this week. He sent me a text and he said, 
do you think that we have um, failed the next generation of believers uh, in the church in terms of apologetics? I mean, I wanted to send him back a novel, but I wrote just a simple thing back. I said, absolutely we have, because we have failed to teach them the doctrines of the faith and give them a theological foundation upon which to make an apologetic. They have no foundation, therefore they have no answer for the hope that is within them. The Christian faith has a strong communal nature, and there's a number of proofs of that. There's a number of proofs of that that you can find. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again in a very public way, didn't he? It didn't get hidden. No, that was wide open for the whole world to see. He walked around, he spoke to the crowds, he was crucified by a crowd. A crowd of people saw him after he was raised. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension was a public ministry. The term we used for the church comes out of the scriptures as the word ecclesia. The word itself literally means an assembly. It was originally used in those days as a group of men who were called out of a local city to act as a city council. They had an ecclesia, the Church writers, the early uh, Christian writers, took that term and said, that fits what the church is. You see the communal nature of the early church in Acts 2, right? What's the first thing that happened? Peter preaches a great sermon. You get thousands that come to faith, and immediately they start gathering together. And everywhere that Paul went, what did he do? Bring a few to faith, and what did they do? They began to gather together almost immediately. There are, specific, there are specific references to the church gathered together in the instructional parts of the uh, scriptures as well. For example, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, you have a dispute, bring it before the ecclesia, bring it before the gathered group of people. 2 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 2, the issue of the unrepentant sinner was to be dealt with by the congregation the communal group of people gathered together to deal with these matters. Paul uses body imagery throughout his writings of the church, this body imagery of all of us being some different part, somebody a hand, somebody a foot, somebody a head, somebody an ear, somebody an eye, whatever, right? Communal, drawn together. And the ordinances of the church have been recognized as always being public in nature and never private. We don't hustle off the guy that needs to be baptized into a corner somewhere and nobody gets to see it. No, what do we want to do? We want to put it in front of the congregation so that the whole church sees the testimony of the man and the same with the Lord's Supper. We call it communion for a reason. And the history of the church has always held that assembling together is a part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, communion is strength, solitude is weakness. Alone, the fine old beech yields to the blast and lies prone on the meadow. In the forest, supporting each other, the trees laugh at the hurricane." The sheep of Jesus flock together. The social element is the genius of Christianity. The 1689 Confession, chapter 26, paragraph 5 says, In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of the word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. And even here, in verses 24 and 25, the concept of one another. Let us stir up one another. 
and in verse 25, but encouraging one another implies assembling together. The godly man says, you know what? The idea of Christians gathering together is without question. It is the automatic response. I would argue it's the automatic response of a people who have been redeemed of their relationship to God and to one another. Not just to God, but to one another. The value of this communal nature, of course, is for a number of things. The teaching, and, the, the teaching and admonition of the scriptures, Christian fellowship, the breaking of bread, the common bond of entering together in prayer. All of those things are the values of us gathering together. Just as the early church did in Acts chapter 2, we continue to do. So the value is for worship, number one. The value is also, though, for that communal sense of us having a newfound set of relationships one with another. Not only a new relationship with God, but a new relationship with one another. There's something that binds us together as those who are called by the name of Christ. And we know it. We feel it in ourselves. I don't mean in some emotionalism sort of way, but I mean in the sense of it's deep within us. It's what the Spirit inculcates into us. I cannot wait to see my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's something deep in the heart of the born-again man. He has a nature that's been redeemed, a nature of relationship that's been redeemed. But it goes even one step further than that. Even the writer is saying this goes one step further. Yes, it's about us gathering together in the most simplistic sense and also coming together and have this deep sense of relationship to one another with the common spirit within us. But it's also, as we note in verse 24, it is the assembly that stirs one another up to love and good works. In the Old Covenant... Okay, remember, put yourself in the minds of the readers of this book, right? Hebrews, thinking like old covenant people. There's a contrast that's established in this book. Another contrast that's established in this book between the old and the new covenant. You see it particularly in Hebrews 8.10 verses, and, 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 and also in Jeremiah 31. In the old covenant, in the old priesthood, with the old priests, no spiritual transformation was present. There was no spiritual transformation. The people simply marched down to the temple. They brought their animal. The high priest, the priest offered the animal, sprinkled some blood here and there, and the people went home. And then they did it again, and they did it again. And they did it again. There was no spiritual transformation. But in the new covenant, there's spiritual transformation. There's something new that takes place within what it is that Christ has done. Christ doesn't just come to offer himself as a sacrifice, sit down and say, okay, now you just repeat that. This is where our Catholic friends go wrong. Look, I was a Catholic for many years, so I know of what I speak. They take what Christ did and they simply put it inside of an Old Testament framework and say, well, he did his part. We just got to do our part now again and again and again and again and again. But the writer of the Hebrews is saying, no, wait a second, wait. Christ has completed something, which means that in the new covenant, we have been, of course, born again and given faith. And thus we are known by what our new nature shows. What our new nature shows to the world. We are not offering the blood of bull and goats, bulls and goats again because our high priest has satisfied it. But we don't also have to then go through the motions of trying to satisfy what has already been satisfied. 
We have been freed to a whole new life, which nobody in the old covenant would have understood. You mean, I can leave the temple, it's done, I'm reconciled to God now, and I could go live in the freedom of love and good works? Well, that's the new covenant, which our supreme high priest has purchased for us. He has come to inaugurate a new covenant that is fully inward by a new nature, flowing out of us in tangible and real ways. And our faith as a belief system is supplemented, I dare say, identified by a demonstration of its reality through love and good works. We show this relationship that we have with Christ in how we act towards others out of our love and good works. So we don't just, as godly men, we don't just go to church because we're supposed to go to church. We go to church to worship. And we go to church because there's a communal nature to it which allows us to gather with brothers and sisters under this new covenant and testify out loud, yes, I believe these things, but also it is for us, the godly man, to be stirred up in that godliness, to go out and live what Christ has done in us. See, it's interesting, isn't it? It says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Where exactly do you think that stirring up occurs? In the assembly. As we come together. The assembly, it says, also awaits for the day to draw near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, did you catch the irony of what I just read? The irony is the writer says here, as we wait for something to draw near. We draw near as we wait for something to draw near. See it? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a concept of this day, working in the present with a hope built on the future. You see it, I think, when Jesus speaks this tension, I think you see it when you see it in Matthew 24, 44 to 46 verses Matthew 25. You have this section in Matthew 24 in which he's talking about some future day when all these things are going to take place, right? Everybody goes to Matthew 24 to define their eschatology. But you turn immediately to chapter 25, and Jesus gives two great parables, the parable of the ten virgins in the first 13 verses and the parable of the talents in the second. On the one hand, the need to be watchful and ready. That's the message of the ten virgins. Don't get caught. Don't get caught without oil in your lamp, right? So be busy, be doing what you are supposed to be doing in anticipation of his coming. But then the parable of the talents is we're supposed to be watchful and ready, but at the same time, we're also supposed to be using the talents we've been given. Don't just bury it in the ground. Go use it for something. We are to be stirred up. For the godly man, the value of coming together is to be stirred up in the use of what God has given to us in this new covenant, in this regenerate nature that he's given to us. So look, verse 25 isn't just about, you know, you need to go to church. Old Testament people were doing that. They were marching down to the temple and doing their thing. The Lord has come into this world. He has come to live under his own law, to give himself over to wicked men to be crucified, to die, be buried, and then to be raised from the dead and ascend to his Father's right hand. He has come to do that, to redeem, dare I say, to glorify what it means to draw near to God. We don't just gather together because it's a religious activity. We draw together because we know that it is a way for us to hold fast that confession, to say, I believe this. I am trusting the promises that God has made 
through his son that those who call upon his name will be saved. I'm making that testimony before the world and I'm doing it in the company of others who believe like me. And secondly, I come because it is a way for me, it is a way for me to gather with others who can support me. They can encourage me or they can rebuke me or they can help me or strengthen me, all those words. I come because I need my fellow brothers and sisters to help me to live in this world, in this day. And then even more, I come into this assembly because it is a way for me to be stirred up even beyond to go out and do now what I could never even dream of doing before. To love and to do good for others in ways I could never even consider before. You see? The godly man loves the gathering of the church because it is a means by which he draws near to God as a part of the glorified family of his heavenly father. On Sunday mornings here at Bethlehem, Sunday mornings at Grace Fellowship in Robertsdale, we don't just gather. We don't just come together, say our phobies comes and go home. Phoebe comes. My father-in-law used that to describe the ritualism of the church that he observed. We don't just say our phobies comes and go home. We have gathered together as those who come with a glorified body into the very presence of God by virtue of a perfect high priest. The godly man doesn't just go to church. He gathers with the company of the elect because he loves to draw near to his heavenly, fathers, his heavenly father alongside his brothers in Christ. His primordial desire for relationship to his creator, established in him at the very foundation of creation, is satisfied in the company of the glorified family of Christ through all of the means that Christ has given to the church for his edification. All of the things that have been given and so that he can enjoy those things as Christ has given and can know a relationship to God infinitely greater even than Adam had in the garden. A perfect relationship established by his perfect high priest, the perfect Adam, as compared to the one that failed the first time. The godly man loves the gathering of his church. He loves it because it is drawing near to his father with all of his brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.